Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of U Squared, the UserWise podcast. I'm your host, Shrikar Tadapudi. Um, U Squared is presented by UserWise, a San Jose-based human factors consulting company. Our consultants partner with medical product companies to aid in the design process to develop medical products that are safe and effective to use. But before we begin today's episode, for our audience who are tuning in via YouTube, you might be wondering why there is no video on this episode. Well, this is because A, um, this was a spontaneously put together episode with a special guest while we're in San Diego on a business trip. You'll know more in a bit. And B, Chris, our podcast guru, does not trust me enough to handle the podcasting equipment by myself while traveling. And for good measure. Good call, Chris, good call. <laughs> um, all right, so I am... I've kind of introduced myself in earlier episodes, but just so for our newer listeners, um, I'm Shrikar Tadapuri, a human factors engineer and a project lead at UserWise. I've been with UserWise for a year and a half now, and my experience ranges from products like single-use pre-filled syringes to um, complex, complicated medical products such as surgical robots. Um, but you've probably heard enough about me and you've probably heard about me a lot um, in the previous episodes. So I'll kind of pass the spotlight to uh, my first guest, Wendy Sledge from UserWise. So Wendy, um, Wendy is a study recruitment manager as well as a human factor specialist at UserWise and she wears many other different hats. Um, so Wendy, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, so um, uh, like Shrieker said, my name is Wendy Sledge. I have a background in nursing, marketing, and um, clinical study design, and I've worked with UserWise for about four years and have been involved in everything from um, clinical study execution to IRB chairperson to human factors project lead. So that's kind of my my story. <laughs> <laughs> um, Wendy has worn a lot of hats and continues to wear a lot of hats uh, here at UserWise. Um, thanks for joining us, Wendy. And for the first time in the series, we have a special guest. We have Danny New, a Senior Manager of Human Factors and Design at Abbott. We're so excited to have you on, Danny. Thank you for doing this on short notice. Um, could you please give our audience a little peek into your background? Uh, yeah. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Danny New. I'm uh, currently here in San Diego. It's not lovely, but you know, hopefully the weather turns better later today. <laughs> Um, my background is pretty much uh, everything. I'm, I like how people mess up things. So I've had backgrounds uh, originally uh, studying in Japan, uh, coming back, working on both wheelchairs and uh, auto injectors and syringes and medical device space. But I've also worked in tech um, on smart glass, uh, self-driving vehicles. And my previous experience before joining Abbott was at Facebook, uh, working on their portal division and their ARVR products. Um, so currently I lead the Abbott division for rapid diagnostics, um, which include rapid testing, such as the Binex Now COVID-19 test and the ID Now rapid molecular test. So I lead my team in those endeavors. Very impressive. <laughs> and can't wait to kind of get started and dive into our discussion. Um, we're actually recording this episode on site at Abbott in San Diego. So thank you for hosting us up here, Danny. Yeah. Um, we are in Abbott's you know, simulated usability lab. Or what do you guys call it? 
Uh, just call it the, our secret nap room sometimes. Nice, nice. nice. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I wish we had a secret nap room. We have yeah. a secret, secret nap couch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. more on that. On Shannon episode. needs to take note. We need a, we need a secret nap room, Shannon. <laughs> oh, great. Yes. Yeah. Uh, ideas that we you know, totally should execute. Um, all right. So, Wendy, I usually kind of introduce the topic at this point. And, um, but I'd like for you to do us the honor today because this topic is right up your alley. It's near and dear to you. So can you tell our listeners what we're talking about today? Why are we here? Yeah. So for the past three years, we've dealt with, um, unprecedented times. Um, COVID-19 has kind of changed all of our lives and also changed the regulatory picture around medical devices, um, and technology and healthcare. So, with that, um, emergency times meant emergency measures, and the FDA came out with the emergency use authorization template for expedited approval for IVD COVID-19 test kits. Um, and I know that you and I, Shrieker, um, were both pretty involved um, in 2021 with multiple COVID-19 test kit projects. Oh, yeah. Um, and just to clarify, the listeners might know the FDA's 2016 Human Factors Guidance, we've covered that in first two episodes of the podcast but if you were a COVID-19 diagnostic test kit manufacturer a couple years ago um, you had to follow the EUA template that Wendy's talking about and the recommendations for human factors testing in these templates kind of conflicted um, with the 2016 guidance for example the 2016 human factors guidance prescribed 15 users per user group as their minimum sample size requirement um, for human factors validation testing, of course, um, whereas the EUA templates back then had were drastically different. Um, it could go as high as 50 participants testing themselves and 50 teams uh, where adults were testing children. So a minimum sample size of 100 um, users or user groups, or whatever you call it, per, per um, you know, 50 per type of testing. So it's definitely a very interesting time. And that kind of brings me to the, you know, why we're here, Absolutely. our special guest, Danny. So Abbott is the creator of Binax Now, a widely successful antigen test kit in the US. And I'm positive that most of our listeners might have heard about Binax Now if they've not used it. Um, so Danny, what was your journey like with this test kit? What were some of the challenges that you faced in the beginning of the pandemic? Oh, well, number one, it's a pandemic. <laughs> uh, I think everyone had that. And I think the number one thing that was really stressful at the time is how do you do human factors study test testing about humans? Um, so a lot of the things were, were unprecedented in the sense that um, I know that words gets played out so much, but like we have uh, people that we couldn't really bring into the office to test a lot of these products. Um, and all the development for a COVID-19 test kit occurred offline. So you're talking about not only doing human factors testing, but developing a brand new product for the consumer market while doing it remotely and working with remote teams. And we had teams in China, we had teams in Europe, we had teams here in San Diego and in Scarborough, Maine, which is our other locations, working all in together to kind of tackle this, this problem. Um, a lot of it's establishing like, well, what we want to bring a at-home product or over-the-counter product to the masses and in order to do that we need to prove certain things to the fda and also uh, establish precedence knowing that there will be competitors in the field to establish abbott as the key uh, leader in that brand and, and proving that we will be the first and, and one of the things that we did uh to be one of the first uh, out there during the pandemic was to establish a lot of the rules that people have copied ever since wow um 
I mean, that's that's quite the kind of introduction there. But I, I, I think early on in the pandemic, I was in Arizona at that time. And I remember um, the only kind of testing that I was hearing about is PCR. But then we have this introduction of antigen tests. Well, what was Abbott's journey like in getting that? <laughs> so I, I think a lot of the mistakes that were made earlier on from a, from just a general industry standpoint was the idea that PCR was the gold standard. And a lot of things that we were fighting against was showing that antigen and rapid molecular testing, both within our wheelhouse, were just as effective in detecting in terms of both sensitivity and specificity to PCR while we're delivering the results in immediate time. I remember before the pandemic, if people can recall, like there wasn't this need for rapid diagnostics as it is today. Uh, people would normally go to the, their doctor or go to the lab and get the results and they could wait a couple of days, two or three days, maybe a week prior to getting the results with very little negative effect. Uh, COVID kind of changed that on its head where people did not know how infectious the disease was, how deadly the disease was who had the, the disease and who didn't. Right. And the only way that people and the government were supporting was the PCR method, um, which required you not only to go to a lab or a hospital, which is, I think, is the most ridiculous thing to do because you're going to a place, even if you're not infected, with a bunch of people that may be infected, point. Um, get a test and go home and wait two or three days at that minimum uh, to figure out if you are infectious or not. And by that point, you have probably infected many other people around you. You have probably not been aware that you've been infecting loved ones around you versus a lot of the rapid molecular and antigen testing, even though the sensitivity and specificity is not as high as PCR, it was giving you results within 15 minutes and we could execute it at home and, and the convenience of not going to a centralized location to get those results. Yeah. Um... I think you keep throwing out these terms sensitivity and specificity. Now, I've been kind of in the loop on that just because of working on COVID-19 test kits early um, in 2021. Um, but can you explain to our listeners what the difference is between sensitivity and specificity? Well, um, specificity is targeting the right disease. So, for example, if we are looking for COVID-19, it's not picking up flu. It's not picking up RSV. It's not picking up something you found on the, on the street. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and making sure that the, the target disease that you're picking up and reading a positive is actually the disease that you're, you're specifying. Um, and then sensitivity is how much can you pick that signal. So preventing a lot of the false positives and false negatives. So if we register that you are negative, that it's sensitive to, to guarantee that that we have not detected any type of um, antigen presence inside your, your body or from that sample that you've been collecting and vice versa, that the, if you do have any um, substance, uh, any antigen inside your system, that we would then specifically pick it up with our sensitivity. So one of the things Abbott prides, said it's pri prides itself on is a lot of the high sensitivity because it's considered one of the standards. We've been doing this for a long time in both our HIV testing and our strep pneumo testing and our flu testing, uh, where our sensitivity is, is probably one of the highest in the, in the marketplace so it's kind of seeing fascinating seeing that you know evolution in that timeline like just dialing back to that time you know your COVID-19 test you're manufacturing a COVID-19 test kit your immediate gateway is the FDA yeah so there had to be someone who kind of talked to the FDA and let them convince them or negotiate the fact that home use test kits are necessary mm -hmm. um, and you know Abbott was one of the first people to come how was your interaction or how was your 
kind of uh, journey there with respect to the FDA? <laughs> oh, well, it was, if I ever said that was a clean conversation with the FDA, I would probably be a millionaire, uh, <laughs> but there isn't. Um, a lot of it was about back and forth. I think the major thing convincing the FDA is that we would be very, very responsible and we were focusing on on safety as the utmost importance in terms of what are the key problems with IVD um, and IVDR materials is false positives and false negatives. Um, invalids is considered relatively safe because what's the problem with you getting an invalid? You would just buy another test right, kit. Right, right. Um, and it would just be a delay in treatment. But one of the things we had to show is that like, if people did get a negative, that it was a true negative, that it wasn't caused by either the test kit or user errors, and that they wouldn't be going out and like, you know, French kissing around a bunch of people and yeah. affected <laughs> a bunch of others. And so once again, showing them that the risk was minimized, that the, the ones that you really need to care about were these, even so, of false negatives more so than false positives. If you had a false positive, more most likely the case would be a person would just stay home and self-isolate or- It's a conservative matter. A, a conservative message. So even if our sensitivity was not great, as great in our positivity compared to our negativity rate, then it's still considered on the safe end. And we're urgent because there's no solution, wide mass solution. One of the reasons why Abbott's successful is that not only was our, our test kit a lot more sensitive than others, we had the manufacturing capability to supply the world. Immediately. Uh, immediately. Yeah. So that's the power of what we had. So, you know, we put the FDA in this kind of more of this trade negotiation where they would be responsible of either putting these, these walls in and preventing the masses from having a solution, just a solution beyond PCR versus like having a test kit that has been fully vetted 100% of the time, which usually the normal approach from the FDA of being very risk averse. Um, and then also just educating them more about how user experience and understanding that users must feel confident in doing these test kits and perceived um, pain and perceived success are a lot more stronger drivers than warning them of all the, the risk and and uh, ways they can mess up doing this test. So you remember a lot of people were, were scared of having swabs stuck up their nose all over their brain. Yeah. 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 Right? Yeah. And one of the things our test kit was like, you don't have to stick it all the way up your, your brain. Like yeah. it's just a simple like nose test. And that was something that we had to really show that to the FDA that even though that you're not getting the high numbers that you normally would expect, you're getting good enough where people have confidence to get the information that they have and go on through their day and proceed without fear. I think that's the thing that we really tried to push toward the, this conversations with the FDA, understanding that um, we having a solution out there is better, that is not perfect, but good, good enough is better than not having any solution at all. And it deserves to exist. That's that's great. That's a great point. And well, now we're talking about the FDA. The FDA's language. Um, I keep bringing, you know, whenever I talk to a new client or, or someone who's interested, I'm, I keep bringing up that the FDA defines in their guidance the way they define things. They say human factors, in a sense, must be used to enhance and demonstrate um, safety and effective to, effectiveness to use in their language. So. In my, I keep saying that enhance is, you know, that it has to periodically go and you have to iteratively keep improving the design over over time. And then demonstrate is the FDA's way of kind of signaling that you have to do a validation study. So I know that Abbott does a ton of human factors um, work and you, there's the enhance phase, but then you get to the validation phase 
And earlier you were mentioning challenges with how do you do validation testing when you don't have people. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you kind of tackle that situation? Um, a lot of it's just proving like basic good human factors and user experience uh, uh, studies design. So and for example, do you really need to have people present with you? Well, as long as you can demonstrate that, you know, virtual versus in-person were equivalent in terms of performing the test kit, whether they demonstrated by showing you each of the steps personally through the recorded environment, it should be equivalent. There was a big hang up at the time of like, you need to have in-person testing. And if people remember the plexiglass walls, I've seen like vendors with like little separate like escape cubes and stuff like that because this insistence by manufacturers or whatever this insistence was, maybe from the FDA, to do in-person study because that was what the regulation was written for. Yes. But we need to be adaptable to the current time to say that it's not practical to do the amount that you want. And we can agree on that 100, which I still think is kind of a ridiculous number for for showing any type of uh, user errors or or accomplishments. We were okay with that, but to bring people in during a pandemic that probably wouldn't show up, anyways and especially the caregiver claim and bringing like children and bringing like other people in in an environment where two people in a room could lead to like a pandemic like spreading absolutely was kind of something that we just had to talk common sense and a lot of the work that we I learned from my time in, in rapid tech was that as long as you can prove studies objectively that they were equivalent um, such as like virtual instructions versus paper instructions. You know, there's very little reason that analog has a experiential difference unless it's actual physical interactions that you need to be present to observe. I I think a lot of the things, and I think with the new guidance that just came out recently, um, the FDA is currently like taking a lot of things that Abbott and probably a lot of other manufacturers have taught, which is like, you don't need to have such strict guidelines to in order to accomplish and make great products. As long as you can have the good scientific foundation and evidence. And I think that what separates human factors experts and, and people that work in the field that have good scientific backgrounds and, than opposed to people that, you know, are saying that we can do user testing or just usability testing and call it a day. Great. So you were able to kind of, you know, put this in evidence out there and negotiate for remote usable validation study. That, that's what I gathered. Yes, we still had to do some in person just to demonstrate initially, but a lot of it was um, doing remote sessions and, and having validations through uh, uh, remote interviews and one-on-one sessions. So what we would do is just send the product to their home and, and we would set up the time over uh, video chat. And then what we would do is just have them run through each of the steps and ask them to do like a usability testing almost. Um, so almost like it, yeah. that's so cool. I mean, I, I know that UserWise has kind of dabbled in that as well. Um, so did you guys send them an electronic IFU or would the IFU be physical? Uh, oftentimes it can get tricky to kind of capture what they're looking at if you have a physical IFU. So one of the studies we equivalently did on was that we had digital instructions as well. And we had to show that to the FDA that um, because digital instructions was considered kind of labeling and crossing that threshold, that digital instructions and written instructions were equally um, equivalent in terms of comprehension and and ability to perform. So we had to do a separate study to kind of show that equivalency that if someone looked at digital instructions, uh, not like just a PDF on on your phone, but actual like digital animated instructions versus paper instructions, that they would perform just as well or even better. Um, So once that kind of gets established, then it doesn't really matter what they're Mm -hmm. seeing. I see. 
because now we can either use the written instructions that they provided, or they can choose to choose the digital instructions. And remarkably, in this day and age, people prefer more of the digital instructions to view on their phone or view on their, their computers to, while performing a test. Um, and if they had paper, some people did that, but they would, you probably use it most of the time as a placemat rather than anything else. <laughs> of course. Yeah. A place to put your uh, testing kit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we did notice that with um, older populations of, um, you know, kind of when we were testing, we had a QR code in one of the products that we were testing. And the older populations, the Wendy and I were discussing about this yesterday, would take pictures of the QR code uh, because they were expecting that it'll take them to the link if you take a picture. So did you have any issues at all with the online or EIFU kind of thing with older populations? Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, we had people that, that would take a picture and send it to us and expect us to do something with it. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> sure. uh, so it was remarkable. Like, you know, people like to think that everyone is a lot more tech savvy and that we're all in this age where everyone has smartphones and they have QR code capabilities. But a lot of people yeah. don't access those or you use it to the day to day. That's why we try to bring redundancy. So, you know, when we did send the test kits, we did, you know, bring, send them instructions. And if they were going to ask us um, like, hey, how do you read positive negatives? We'd ask them to hold a piece of paper and point that out to us. But one of the things that we're seeing more so than what I say in my past is that people know what a QR code is now. Uh, before just even showing that image or even saying that word would just be like, what? <laughs> yeah, I think COVID-19 yeah, changed that landscape. I think restaurants people don't even really have, understood. Yeah. They don't even have physical menus. No, not anymore. Yeah, yeah. So I think the adoption of, which is, you have to thank a lot of the, the, the COVID doing and a lot of the like wireless um, touch contacts such as Apple Pay and QR codes are being more ubiquitous amongst the general population because of the fact that we're we are more used to, to using it and, and finding it as you know cumbersome but usable. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, with a hundred users, these testing validation studies could take a while. Um, I, that, that's been our experience. Good. So this whole thing, you begin testing. How long did it take you to complete the whole thing? How long? Oh, I can't remember. Um, it took a while mm. because uh, it wasn't clean. That's the problem with a lot of these large testing amounts is right. that you'll start having, you'll start seeing the results prior to even finishing the, the 50 or 100. And then you would either have to like pause it and say like, okay, what do we need to change? What do we need to do? Uh, make edits and then try to continue with that or write, you know, if something was a true user error or not. I would say the entire process took about three to four months um, in succession. The the major problem, of course, was the caregiver claim, especially with children. Um, it's, it's tough. Uh, kids, they didn't want kids to be part of the experiment, and usually you need special agreements with their parents and, and children to sign up for it. But one of the benefits, I would say, is that when people realize that we are working on COVID testing, there was a lot, lot better expectations of turnout than I would have thought because the the, the call for action of you know, helping out the greater population of with this type of testing. Definitely. Um, we, we had to kind of navigate around that issue of having, you know, kids and yeah, adults coming in, the adults are swabbing the kids. Um, so how did we, uh, Wendy, maybe can you speak to a little bit about how we navigated around that issue with respect to consent and all that? Yeah, so it, it does it require a special consent with IRV um, because you're using children, which are a protected class of people. So you're dealing with that as well. And then having to consent both the parent and the child. 
um, and making sure that the child understood enough um, to, to uh, you know, agree to it because you'll still end up shocking them when you come towards them with a, with a, a swab. So it was, you know, it was very interesting time where you, you were, um, a parent was saying, oh yeah, sure, my child will do it. And then you walk towards them. <laughs> they walk towards them with the swab. Oh, no. And the child we, I, I had a whole, like, full out, like, Maury, like, Jerry Springer things where oh, kids, yeah. kids, kids would, would fight to the death prior, oh, to, oh, the, for sure. yeah, prior to letting their parents, because I think a lot of them weren't told, uh, communicated with what, what the whole ordeal was going to be. Sure. Yeah. yeah. In a way that they understood and weren't scared. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Huh. Um, so one of the key differences between, I mean, when I think of Binex now, I immediately think of one key difference, which is the other um, test kits that I might have used would have this buffer tube um, and then some solution in it. And then we drop the swab in that tube and there's like a little bit of a procedure there. But with Binex now you have a folding card design. So what's the what's the story behind that? How did you come <laughs> it was it was an accident actually. So um, it was first discovered where we were originally supposed to have a cassette. So everybody we did have a cassette, which we had uh, called Pan Bio. And um, we originally were investigating, like, is this something that we want to launch with? And we found out that there was a lot of problems with the, the Pan Bio test kit from not only from a manufacturing standpoint of uh, remember that there was hard to get plastics and hard to get any materials during Absolutely, the pandemic, yeah. um, which was like, that's why I said an accident. We were like looking for more environmentally and, and more um, economically conscious ones and paper is mm. cheap. <laughs> and uh, secondly, that there was too many steps. And what we what I would want to go back to Wendy's point was, is that when we were doing that 50 testing, we were when we first started it, we were starting with the cassette design and it was just failing because people basically called it a chemistry set and people did not take chemistry. No, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And there was this big problem of just trying to say like, well, we're not going to pass validation if people can't get to an end result. Like they either give up or they they can abandon it or they did it. So we said, well, we need to make this a lot simpler. And what what other technologies you had? And it started coming through where uh, one of our scientists said that we had this card design from Flu a long, long time ago. And it was mostly made to kind of be kind of more gimmicky of terms of showing like how Abbott was more environmentally conscious. Mm -hmm. And it was a little bit easier to kind of transport because you could stack them up versus cassettes where you had to package it in a box. Right. And it originally came um, as a flu AB card. And so when we looked at that, we, we saw like, this could be something. If we made some changes to it, I think it could work because the whole idea of this book opening allowed for two major problems that we saw in usability testing. One, people threw away instructions. And so immediately you lost your ability to understand what to do and the second problem is people didn't know two lines versus one line. So that's been the problem ever since then, unless you've taken a pregnancy test, um, which I think only half of us have done as well. Uh, I haven't, but like... I it, definitely have. <laughs> yeah, it was hard for people to understand what does positive mean. And usually it's hard because the language is counterintuitive. If I'm positive, it's actually a bad thing. And if I'm negative, it's actually a good thing. Right. Um, and having that, the, the more real estate on the card design allowed us to put both the instructions on the card or quick reference guide on the actual card itself and also inter result interpretation in front of the card so that when we're doing the basic testing of people understanding how to perform the test and how to get the accurate result, 
having that car design allowed us to really uh, encompass all those those designs. And then the side effect of it was that allowed for people to feel more confident because everything was housed within that card. Um, it wasn't as disassembled and disjointed as the cassette design. And, and it was a lot more comfortable disposing it because people had both the swab and the, the card itself to be disposed of versus you're throwing like a whole Different bunch things of away. Thing, things away. Yeah. Um, so it kind of was uh, uh, like every great invention in science was made by accident and need of necessity rather <laughs> yeah. than, than pure innovation and, and forethought. <laughs> So from a potentially a chemistry assignment gone wrong to a sustainable um, green, you know, and user-friendly approach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was a lot of things that once we kind of started gravitating, it kind of started naturally adding to the, the user-friendliness and, and made sure that it was very reasonable to tell a story right. that said that this was very purposeful at the very end. It was because we knew that we need more real estate. You couldn't print instructions on a cassette. We knew that people didn't know how to do the buffer solution. If you told them buffer, they would be like, what is, is that like a person? <laughs> uh, Buffy the vampire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, it was like all this terminology you're throwing at people, but people understood, you know, popsicles. That's what we got it called a lot of times. People understood cards and books. And it was it was grounding people in a reality that they were familiar with. And, you know, um, everybody has that familiarity of, of it being not so threatening that it was just it was very in its simplicity it made it a lot more user friendly because it all when you open the box there was pretty much just three pieces the card the buffer solution and the swab and, and it made people feel a lot more confident that they could do this that makes sense that's very um, brilliant yeah like in a time where it was there was so much um unsure this that was happening you were giving them familiarity that's just it's brilliant it's just, so that i what i'm hearing is that kind of takeaway you got by understanding your users. Um, early on, you made that distinction between, okay, there's people using cassette, they're facing difficulties. So um, just for the audience uh, to be clear, cassette is that little strip of plastic with, uh, um, with the place where you would drop the liquid with the well. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah so that's called a cassette. That's what we're referring to when we said a cassette. But so it's that insight that you had that, you know, allowed you to, or encouraged you to move towards that, you know, might be one of the things that encouraged you to move towards the card design. So how did you have that? Insight? Did you do like early testing or? Um, well, number one is that we knew what the weaknesses with the with the actual cassette, with the dropping of the buffer. We had people missing the hole. We had people like <laughs> trying to do wild, wild things. And we knew it was, a, it was a crash test waiting to happen. Like we saw that this wasn't the solution as much as the company wanted to, to, to basically like every company wants to do, take something off the shelf that they currently make and just adapt it yes. and launch it out. Um, yeah. We knew that this wasn't good. So based off our recommendations and we knew that with the urgency that the company wanted to launch something immediately and we, we kind of did everything in par parallel. The clinicals were running in parallel. Um, everything was, was um, our, our manufacturing was running in parallel. It was unheard of at the time to have all this work done for a product that is not finished yet. It was like yeah. still in production. The only thing that we had was the technology, the, the guts of it, the strip itself. Right. So one of the things that we could change is where does the strip live? And that's where we started saying, 
once we immediately kind of cut off that the cassette was uh, no longer a viable option for just the this market to show explicitly um, in our human factors testing that it wouldn't proceed what are our other options and we investigated you know other types of you know form factors um, that would be able to it's we looked at our pregnancy kit department seeing if it's like more of like a dipstick or a, mm-hmm. a cup or and everyone hates everything else right, <laughs> so like right. dip, dipsticks are messy and they're even worse and then you have more of this pregnancy device and you have people confused as a pregnancy device um, and then and digital which was been more expensive and then we just said like you know we started just really just brainstorming and saying like what do people really need like and, and one of the things that we had to eliminate and take on our heads is that we are not babysitting people to prevent them from doing the wrong things. We want to get people the results as quickly, as fast as possible and get out of their way. Yes. And that kind of led to this idea of get rid of it, get rid of extra steps, get rid of extra other processes. They it's just going to have them confused. They're going to mess up. They're going to throw it away. Just keep them focused on getting their end results, knowing simply if i'm positive and i'm negative and that's it <laughs> that's that's kind of the beauty of involving user-centered thinking and human factors early on in your you know kind of process in order to and in this case it'll even it even led to market edge um, which is you know i think one of the things that we keep talking about user-wise um, the importance of involving human factors early on rather than at the tail end to just Absolutely. do validation. Well, and, and it had made the report writing very, very easy, actually, when you actually know what your success criteria was. Right. And it allows you to explain a lot of the more close calls or, or a lot of the user errors as not as important because ultimately, at the end of the day, did they get the result? Did they do it safely? Did they actually understand and comprehend um, mm-hmm. the result? And they can actually source where they got that information um, consistently, you know, a lot of people, I would say, failed because the fact is that um, they put their result interpretations solely on their paper IFUs, and they couldn't. People did not know they had a reference like, "Is one line's positive?" Or, or is it one yeah. line or two lines that yeah. positive? Or right? like it's slightly, slightly pink, so I'm slightly COVID. <laughs> I'm a little bit of COVID. <laughs> But it's like, and we always say the same thing. You're not a little bit pregnant, are you? <laughs> right, right. Well, and just in, it just with that, with, with the differences between what people are familiar with, like you said, with the pregnancy tests, it's you, you're getting that that negative transfer of learning to, from one device to another when it's too similar. Yeah. Um, so. Um, I've, I've definitely heard a participant say, my left nostril doesn't have COVID, but yeah. my right nostril might. Yeah, um, it, it, it was. These, could, these were all knew. real concerns. Right. Like th- these could be things that if I do not know enough, I mean, I I was privy to the whole process because I was involved in testing. But if I were on the other side, if I were the laser, I could totally see myself saying something like that. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I also said like the big difficult thing we had is that um, people were talking about. Um, the five circles or, or t- uh, 15 seconds or 20 seconds, I forgot right. what it was. And one of the things that we had is that we realized people can't count past four, three or four a lot. And a lot of people can't go up to 20, 20 seconds per nostril. So one of the things is like, how do you keep people actually collecting the sample long enough uh, to be able to get that reading? And, and a lot of times we just try to kind of trick them in terms of saying, hey, just five circles was a lot more established than 20 seconds because our scientists were saying, like 20 seconds how do we how do we find that a different way right right <laughs> yeah. that is actually something that's uh was personally like we wendy and i had to kind of work on that together to kind of 
refine the instruction there because one of the clients uh, back then that we were working with had an instruction that said 15 seconds mm -hmm. and we noticed that that was a constant point of failure mm -hmm. for most people because perceiving time cognitively is way harder than perceive like counting rotations for example so uh, just as you said we recommended them to kind of you know go with rotations rather than seconds because for me that was maybe one second but then in reality it could be two and you know people can't just the the perception of time is well, different. absolutely when we did that when we see that error we, we kind of had that mm -hmm. argument um with, with the fda to show that perception of time is not uniform in terms that uh, we cited the paper that I think it talked about that younger people perceive time a lot quicker than, exactly. than older people. Absolutely. And you've asked them to count 20 seconds. Right. You know, younger age people would constantly be under and older people would be more over the time or even closer to the actual time that's perceived. Absolutely. And even just the, the, the way that they slot, how fast and how slow. Um, they would count differently be, depending on how they were swabbing. It was very interesting. Yeah, I've, I've they would seen, count faster if they swabbed faster. So exactly, yeah. I've seen people count. You know, fifteen seconds. Some people would say, "Oh, you need fifteen seconds," and I'll count fifteen seconds, and then they would count really fast. Yeah, exactly. Which is perfect. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. I think another finding that we found out is that people doing it on themselves versus other people. On other people, they're a lot more deliberate and slow. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's true. Yes, and trying to trying to get them to actually pull out a timer. It, it the, the, you know that extra step of take out a timer, set the timer for fifteen seconds. You know, yeah, I'd rather to, hold a kid down who's screaming right, right. for fifteen seconds than you know do it myself. Right? Yeah, yeah. That, that's usually the case that we had as well. So it was very interesting that. Um, when self-inflicted people wanted to be as over as fast as possible. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that's true. Um, so you, you mentioned that you kind of had these, you had an opportunity for labeling with on the card and all mm -hmm. that. So in general, the instructions and labeling can either make or break a product. We've seen this numerous times. So what was your story like with developing packaging, labeling, oh, all that? Uh, that, that was a that's a long journey. So a lot of one of the things that they really want to adapt it was taking the the original instructions, which was a, the cassette instructions, and adapting it and just shoving it in. But those were made for professional use cases, and there was like terminology such as you know buffer and um, you know uh, sample and antigen and words that people wouldn't really be necessarily familiar with that we saw and we like there needs to be a lot of adapt adaptation with this. Um, the original design was a column design. So it was like four or five columns, uh, top to bottom. And there was very, we were going so fast at that time um, that we couldn't really have too much time to change the format. So most of the things that we changed was like things around labeling and a little about language. Um, a lot of that work was really just ordered to simplify it and make sure that people were very clear. As we started working on it and we started now having a, a much better sense of where people got stuck, um, we realized that the instructions were way too long. It was maybe at the four, like 40, 40, 42 steps, maybe. The, I'm trying to recall all the steps that were <clears throat> in there. And we realized, no, it's not actually 40, 42 steps. It's actually just four main groups. You have like this pre preparation, I, I have it right here, sample, test, read, and dispose. It's actually five groups of major actions that are broke into subtasks. So when I tell you like, hey, you have to do 42 things before you get a result, a lot of people have very little confidence to actually accomplishing the, the results. But if I tell you it's just five, people felt like, oh, I, I can do five. Oh, and it's just really just five separate things. Yeah. 
Um, and a lot of tools that we use were, were actually quite innovative for the medical device space at the time. Uh, we use eye tracking softwares um, to be able to improve where people are looking. What are the people actually reading? Are they paying attention to the image? Are they paying attention to the text? <coughs> Sorry. Um, and really just making sure that they're looking at the right things and that they're comprehending as quickly as possible what's the key pieces of information to move forward. And a lot of that instruction, all that objective measurements allowed us to move a lot quicker. We knew what things were working. Um, I think what everybody experiences, when, especially when writing instructions, it's easy to make something long. It's hard to make something very short and concise. concise. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> with these objective tools that we had, we were able to cut down a lot of the fat. So as much more people said, what about this? Like People are not reading that. They're not paying attention to that. Let's get rid of that. Like You need to have them. It's confusing them. That's the worst thing. So adding more information actually caused what we call paralysis at sometimes, where you have given too many options and they don't know what to do. Right. Um, so what we clearly did was have a lot more objective tools um, uh, besides usability testing to be able to say people are performing quicker, having better user experiences and performing better as a result of that comprehension. Um, and then secondly, we worked on packaging. So one of the big questions during the time during COVID is like, if we are launching a, uh, a at-home test kit that will be sold in the pharmacy, where is this going to be placed? Remember, like nobody knew. There's no COVID aisle <laughs> before it existed. Yeah, right. And so there was questions of, should it be placed in the pregnancy test kits where all the other testing devices? Well, that's not natural where people would go look for that. Mm. Would you put it in the cold and flu aisle with other medications, like your NyQuil's and your Tylenol's? But yeah. that doesn't make sense too, to have a, a test kit with a bunch of medication in those aisles. And there wasn't very much things you could do to treat symptoms at that time. So the, the first argument was like, hey, do we need to put it behind the pharmacy counter? And if we did, that was kind of the first agreement because that was they had to consult someone. Is how do you see something from, from so far away behind the counter? So our packaging was, was once again uh, um, developed with these tools to see how a person walks through a store. We had these eye tracking glasses um, Interesting. to be able to see how they navigated where they're going toward. And if they're going to the pharmacy, um, and looking behind the counter, what are the colors that stand out? And one of the things that we found was that in behind the pharmacy counter, it was all white. There's a lot of white. There's a lot of beige and, and our blue. And we purposely put a darker blue color, if you look at our Binex packaging, right. to stand out. And that's the key piece of information. People didn't know what a Binex now was. It was just a proprietary name. The thing that they called our test was the COVID test kit. They, that's what they called it. Right. So one of the things that we had to highlight is that that labeling of that COVID-19 test kit as uh, in the yellow in our coloring schemes, because that popped out against the blue background. Mm -hmm. So as even if from far away from from behind the pharmacy counter, when it first originally appeared, people can identify, I want the COVID test kit and see it from far away. And we saw that through our data. That's really cool. Yes. I kind of often tell people who are not human factors engineers that one of the best things that I like about human factors is it's, it's interdisciplinary and it's born out of collaboration between fields. And I constantly find myself kind of collaborating with cross-functional stakeholders. And that's my day-to-day. -day. And I can kind of see that you must have had collaborations with marketing because you're talking about colors on packaging and everything. So how, how is collaboration like in order to get that out? Yeah. Uh, collaboration was really fun um, here at Abbott. Like, I, I think one thing that I really enjoyed about medical device companies that I did 
compared to tech. Um, people are working here. I'm not saying anything bad about tech by any means, yeah. but like people here really want the best for their customers. They want the product to exist for more than just selling more stuff. They they know that they're doing a solution that potentially can you know help people and potentially save lives um, if it, it existed. So there was a lot of idea of like how do we get this to our customers' hands? How do we educate people? How do we have a marketing kit campaign that that our test kit was just as effective as the PCR? So we were one of the only test kits that was approved by the US government to be used for travel because of all that work that we did to show that our antigen test kits were just as sensitive, um, uh, sensitive enough to, to show that people were negative within a 48 hour window prior to departure. Um, to, to the U.S. government. So as opposed to other antigen test kits that did not lay that foundation of saying like, hey, our sensitivity is high enough that you can be safe that if someone traveled, that they're, they're negative and they, they're absolutely, actually a negative. Um, so I would say like having that interdisciplinary working with our marketing, working with our regulatory, especially, right. um, and our quality, uh, I'm sure our quality wasn't very happy with, <laughs> with, what, with what a lot of things we were doing, but we, it was under times where we needed to to move very fast and a lot of times we needed to document as best as we could um, and our regulatory knew that like we needed to have a product and we needed to prove certain things and what really mattered and what are the things that we can prove later on so it it showed a really big team effort here at, at Abbott that everybody was on top of their game and everyone stepped up um, to really tackle the problem knowing that like if we didn't do it then we we don't we didn't know who else could um, and we were making a solution that ultimately would have gotten us, hopefully got us out of this pandemic the way we're at right now. We didn't know if the vaccines were coming. Nobody knew what was going to happen, right? We were all in these silos in our homes, just trying our best to, to, yeah. to get these products out there. Absolutely. <laughs> Uncertain times, but definitely that team effort, as you said, would expedite, you know, it cycles. It, it's rapid development and... Um, for a rabbit hand to test it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I, I was always brought up this quote of just like, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to actually make change, go together. Right. So we, we were always like on the same page. It was never about, you know, I worked in other medical device companies where everybody has their ability to kind of lay down the law of like, you can't pass if you don't appease these rules or you can't move forward if you can't make a thousand of them. Everyone was more of like, what do we have to do? Like, how do we, help how do we kind of figure out to move this forward we we don't want to be the person that stops this train absolutely absolutely um so manufacturers were doing earlier you mentioned clinical testing simultaneously while there was you know human factors testing happening so did you ever like try to combine the two perhaps or was there ever any kind of efforts to do actual use as shannon likes to put it <laughs> um, yeah, well, the, the problem was is that we were conducting clinical testing and we tried our best to try to get insights from the field of what they were experiencing in terms of user error and, um, and user experience, but they were moving so fast for clinical testing. Usually clinical testings take years right. to plan and, and, right. and execute. So once the ball is rolling, it's like an unmovable train to kind of get it. To, to kind of pause or stop. So what we were basically doing is mostly being flies on the wall and understanding like what was happening with our clinical testing and just seeing what people were, were having difficulties with. Um, and one of the benefits that we had is that our professional test kit was proven before our over-the-counter test kit. So we kind of knew 
what to expect based off our professional test kits. And when you had experts um, that like such as myself in terms of uh, who worked with consumer markets, and that came from my Facebook experience, you know the transition from a controlled environment to an uncontrolled environment as a person's homes, what you need to start taking account for that may cause problems. And then you, we talk to our scientists to see if it's an issue. For example, um, a lab is a very clean environment. A human's home is probably the most dirtiest thing in the world. <laughs> and understanding what happened to the chemistry if if that happened. And one, going back to the, the book example, one of the side benefits of having the book is that it covered the sample well. So you couldn't interfere with it once it was closed and sealed. And our scientists were very like, like, oh, that's like, we didn't expect that. But it actually helps with an at-home environment because now... People are not touching with the hole. People are not messing with it. They're just looking at that small little window that we provided, and that's the only thing they can interfere with after it's been collected. Yeah. Um, Wendy and I were involved in at-home testing, so some amount of contextual inquiry, some amount of you know ethnographic research, something like that, or hybrid as um, close to that as we could get during those times. And I remember some people, we worked on a molecular test kit and it had to be plugged in and people had various issues with that like they their plug point would be next to um a nightstand that's full of things and they just move a couple things and put it on the nightstand there's kids running there's dogs barking uh, everything's messy so there's so much variability in people's homes that's that's definitely a good point um so i often kind of think about what other things that we had um, early on with that template. And I remember that they said the COVID-19 test kit should provide instructions in both English as well as Spanish at a minimum. Mm-hmm. And the, they initially also asked for including Spanish speaking users to be in the human factor validation studies. And something that's not a requirement for the 2016, uh, part of the 2016 guidance. So did you guys have to conduct usability testing in Spanish for the initial template? Um, yeah, we, we definitely had to do uh, a bit. But once again, um, with that background of showing equivalency studies and doing like online testing to show that people can understand key questions, uh, being given the English instructions and the Spanish equivalent instructions. We did a lot of uh, different languages too, not only Spanish, we were sh- we were launching in, in the EU. So German, French was also included as well. Um, and then we wanted to launch in, in Asia. And so and, um, I think in South America, which Portuguese for Brazil. And what a lot of things we've had to show is like, well, if we had these different language speakers, if they can understand the instructions equivalently to the English speakers, then technically we have equivalence to um, comprehension of the studies. So it's really just bringing this, these cases to show that like, yes, we, we've taken them account. Uh, if we can't recruit them, here's a study that shows that, you know, native speakers of each language can understand the same questions and, and comprehend the key steps that, that are the most riskiest, like result interpretation, sample collection, and insertion. So for us, uh, our approach was once again, when I work with, with any group or whether it's FDA or, or my counterparts or collaboration is understanding what is the story and does it make sense logically of like, do you really need to bring 50 like Spanish speaking users to prove that Spanish speakers can understand it because we're all people. We all have similar ways of processing information. Just our languages are different and showing that people still get the key pieces of information um, was a great tool to show. Um, and I, that's why I advocate like, 
this move to online testing and, and using more of this more user user research design human factors is a huge help. I mean, I, I really wish that one of the big changes for medical devices that they have much more user experience, user research, you know, uh, UX arms in their teams to really push product development up front and, and have these conversations earlier on with the FDA to explain that this is probably the best way to execute the study versus the only thing you can do is usability test. I look at that as like a hammer to solve every nail problem that you have. Absolutely. Um, I quite distinctly remember like I graduated and my first ever, you know, full-time human factors engineer user-wise, first ever project is a COVID-19 test kit. So we go through the whole thing, moderated, um, ran the studies, um, you know, we collected root cause data, we're reporting. And something that surprised me and many of my colleagues was the quantitative nature of reporting that the FDA expected, which is different from the 2016 human factors guidance in the EU, per the EUA template. There, I mean, not maybe not verbatim, but they were expecting, there was this whole talk of 90% um, success. And I mean, what I studied in, in school and what I've conducted, I've worked a little bit on a project with Hyundai and um, a couple of other companies, and we've always treated usability testing in general as a highly qualitative endeavor. So in your opinion and experience, um, were there any benefits in testing 100 users? Uh, no, there was no benefit. <laughs> and besides, a lot of money is being spent in, uh, right. in doing that. Uh, it is a, like I think that's the hard part of doing human factors in a medical device company because it's a bunch of scientists, engineers, which are easier to have quantitative measures of pass and fail. You know, there's drop testing you can show, if it, you know, have a drop, how many would break. Uh, for like science, you can run many experiments, which, which I mentioned before, sensitivity and specificity, which shows exact measures. With human factors and, and user research, you're dealing with people who are very, very confusing to begin with <laughs> in general. And all you can do is try to mitigate as much as you can and address the issues to the degree that you have. A lot of times we were told like um, people might use buffer from different products. That, that for, for me, that's not the responsibility of the manufacturer to what if a person uses somebody else's buffer solution and we need to discount that or, or, or do those type of things. Um, we did have those type of like, like clear bars. But once again, like this is why you bring people that have done this and can explain the qualitative nature of it, that you can provide metrics in certain things, but you would rather provide metrics in terms of improvement from initial design and reduction of critical uh, tasks that may cause uh, the key problems that you're looking for. And especially when you're talking about IVDR, once again, we're, we're not like, no one's gonna, necessarily going to die from not having the results <laughs> perfect every single time. Uh, you know, we were, we're more of a knowledge basis to be able to help that and really try to establish that we're trying our best to get people the information uh, and, and having them understand if something's wrong and that if they, they, if they feel more concerned, they should de definitely then go consult the doctor and do that because that option is always provided. We're, we're not the end-all be-all right. <laughs> to their, their testing solutions. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we worked on some of those usually risk analysis and definitely death is not <laughs> one of the um, injuries or harm to the user. Um, obviously, abnormal use, there's all kinds of things, but you know, it's a normal 
typical use, um, that's the scope of the useful interest risk analysis that you generally submit to the FDA. One of the things I always found very difficult about the, the guidance itself is that it operates in a vacuum of the te- the product exists, it suddenly exists, that person absolutely needs it at that point, and it needs to be performed right then and there with no help or no, no instructions or no anything in a very regulated environment. That doesn't mimic reality whatsoever, ever whatsoever. <laughs> Definitely. In terms of people yeah. ask, you know, we have people ask, like, if they don't know something, they're going to ask their friend who have bought their test of how to do it. They will, you know, do the test in their bedroom. They'll do their test in the dark. They'll do their test outside. There's very little ability for you to say that things that happen within four walls of this, even this usability lab that we're in right now, <clears throat> exist as a carryover of what will happen 100% in reality. Absolutely. Because, I mean, even just being in that environment, they may spend extra time looking at the instructions, thinking that's more like a test. I'm gonna, you know, I need to, I need to pass this this test, so I'm gonna spend more time. But if I brought this thing at home, I would not be doing this. Yeah, yeah we absolutely. obviously kind of try to accommodate for some of those biases and you know try to avoid them, right? But even then, at the end of the day, it's a usually saying there is some inherent bias um, in the sort of people who sign up to go to these studies. There's some research out there that looks at that as well. Like people who sign up for studies are inherently slightly different from realistic users. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things I constantly have to explain is like the Hawthorne effect of having people that are watched want to please the the end user, I mean the the moderator for whatever reason. Right. You know, just trying to do their best and they're blaming themselves or they'll they'll answer any survey questions with the highest marks because you know, they want to they want to please the the people and they want to come back again they, they know that if they don't perform well then you know they might not be invited to come back for future testing so one of the things that that needs to really be explained i i would hope as a change to the industry as a whole from from testing is that there's a tremendous value from just a, a testing in a very regulated environment uh, which goes back to that when um, I'm glad the FDA kind of took in that virtual testing is considered just uh, accepted standard to um, in-person testing. Yeah, yeah I think I, I think just to, to touch on that since you brought it up um, that there's a, the newest FDA guidance and that there's some some major changes in the newest FDA guidance. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit since you just Hit on one of those points. Yeah, yeah. The FDA just recently released in t- uh, November 9th, two thousand twenty-one. So not not too uh, uh, new, but not too yeah, old either. Uh, about the template for developers of molecular antigen diagnostic testing, and a couple of the major guidances changes that that we understood from that is that hundred mark has now been brought down to uh, thirty, so fifteen self-given and fifteen and user um, uh, caregivers. I think they realized. Great. Yeah, I think they realized that the ridiculousness of. 100 people for a, uh, for a uh, COVID testing did not yield any better results than a 15-person testing. I think there, there's some people that talk like uh, sense to them in terms of understanding that you won't gain any more knowledge from doing it besides just having extra data, which I guess being risk-averse as they are, they, they rather have the extra sense of data. Another piece of information that, that they came up with the equivalency of, of remote testing and acceptance of remote testing in lieu of in-person testing, as long as you can show that you know it, it's performed um, correctly and that the results that you're getting will will show the usability issues, that's a huge marker too. Because that was a big question for the longest time during the the COVID nineteen pandemic, not only for di- diagnostic testing, for all medical device testings. Like, 
do we have to do it in person? And no, the FDA didn't really have an answer at that time. So with this kind of guidance allows us to, to say that we can conduct it. And then finally, one of the biggest things that I think is very important is that the FDA said that they allow for, um, you know, doesn't that will allow for, for people to conduct uh, uh, equivalency testing if they can show that their products are very similar to on market products or previous products so that you don't have necessarily have to conduct a full-on usability testing again um, for any new products that are, are in the diagnostics um, uh, field, which is incredible, which allows us to move a lot quicker to show that if we are building on our legacy or our platform and that the only things that are changing are maybe the disease states, that um, they allow us to move a lot quicker to be able to show that um, like solid user experiences should be carried throughout. Yeah, that's great. Um, that kind of, with the whole, with the equivalence thing, that's always been a vein that the FDA followed with the, even with the combination products that have the threshold analysis um, that I've done a webinar on. Um, if you're interested, there should be a, we can add like a link in the comments. Um, but yeah, so I'm glad that the FDA has stakeholders who are kind of updating, even if it's late, that, that there's kind of updating uh, an update to the whole testing strategy in person versus virtual, sample size requirements and things like that. Um, so I do know that you're running very short on time right now and we did talk a lot. That's I'm going to blame Danny for that. Yes, yeah, I'm totally blaming Danny as well. Oh, no. Yeah, interesting. Uh, this, this, this is my escape room, so you'll see me in here. <laughs> yeah, interesting stuff. That we couldn't help but, you know, kind of talk about that. That was no, great. for sure. Um, thank you for sharing your experience and being a treasure trove of information danny it was a pleasure talking with you uh, it's a pleasure too you know i hope that you guys do keep on doing the good work and um as long as the the knowledge keeps on growing of, of the importance of human factors and, and user research for all these these companies it it really makes we all deserve better products i, I think in general absolutely very well summarized. said that's great and thank you for being for being here and for your valuable contributions as always, Wendy. Um, for our listeners who are interested in further understanding the IVD test kit landscape, we will link some resources down below. Uh, please check them out. And that's it for this episode. Um, what are your thoughts on things we discussed today? Listeners, please let us know in the comments. If you have any questions or things to add, please let us know. You can also visit our website at userwiseconsulting.com. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next time.